we are almost done with the preamble of, of the, uh, the church um, covenant. And uh, we've gotten this far. In recognition of Christ's purpose for the church and having been saved by God's grace and baptized in obedience to Christ Jesus' command, we, the members of Liberty Hills Bible Church, and there's some more, but we're not there yet. One more week. One more week and we'll be out of the preamble. Uh, I think one, right? Two? Okay. <laughs> one more week and we'll be out of the preamble. Uh, so you're probably like, come on, guys. Let's just get to, let's get to the meat. Well, I, I think this is, this is meat as well. Because the, the, the words that are put into this covenant are here on purpose, right? We didn't just, you know, throw up some things that sounded nice. You know, they're, they're here intentionally, right? So um, this word member is an intentional thing. This is something that we call the church covenant. It's a covenant that the members of Liberty Hills Bible Church are covenanting together uh, to do. Um, and I'll let uh, Eric delve into that a little bit more next week as far as what, what in the world that means. Um, but we, we have this word members, right? We're not, you're not going to find Liberty Hills Bible Church in the Bible. So that's not what we're focusing on. But we're focusing on this word members, Right? Membership. And um, this is something that, uh, unfortunately, I was, as I was preparing, I completely forgot to put that uh, diagram in my notes. But there have been polls out even recently of, um, of membership in the church. Now, uh, these polls oftentimes are very broad and they include like, uh, other religions, they, improve, they include Catholicism, they include um, uh, Judaism, you know, so they often improve, include other religious groups as well. But overall, and even when they do shrink it down to just those who would claim to be uh, Christian, claim to be in the Christian church, membership is down a lot. Um, there's a lot of attendance but when you specifically ask people, are you a member of a local group, a local church, a local assembly, um, the numbers are, are really, really far down. I don't remember what they are off the top of my head, um, but if you want to know, there's a Gallup poll out there. I actually sent it to these guys uh, earlier in the week, just kind of shocked, honestly, how low it was. I want to say it was in like the 32%, somewhere around there, for millennials, which is my age group. I looked it up. Unfortunately, I found out I'm part of the millennial group just at the very beginning of it. I don't, I don't associate really with that group, but uh, you know, but down to like 32%, I think, really low. People who claim to be believers, claim to be followers of Christ, but are not committed to a local church body in any formal way. Um, even you, you might say, well, that's just those millennials, right? They're a little, they're a little squeamish about a lot of things. So uh, maybe that's just millennials. Well, actually, across the board, everybody's down. Um, baby boomers, Gen X, they're all—I I don't know what they all are—but they're all they're all down. Um, if I remember right, they're down approximately about twenty percent uh, just in the last probably five years. And of course, it's been a steady decline over time. But just in the last five years, we've really seen even more of a shift to um, this concept of kind of nebulous attachment to the church, right? There's a there's a, a sense where, where Christians today are just they're just kind of maybe you know touching the church, just kind of yep, yeah, I'm I'm part of it, right? I'm a part of that. I, I, I go. I go to that church. Right, you hear that a lot. I go. I go to that church. Um, I even was uh, talking to a friend of mine recently. We were talking about um, churches and, and joining churches and what you should look for in church and things like that. And, um, and he even asked me this question. And, and again, I'm, I'm not saying he's a horrible person for asking this, but I think it's an interesting question that's being asked. Do I really need? To be locked down by one church. Do I really need to be locked down by one church? Is, is there a reason why I, why I should be willing to, to put all my focus and energy 
and effort into this one local body. And, you know, that could be a hard question, especially, you know, when you look at the wide variance of churches, right? You've got churches like us that are pretty small. Uh, you've got churches that are uh, very large. You've got churches in Liberty that are thousands of people. And so you, the, when you look at the, the different landscape, you kind of wonder, well, you know, what is the right church for me? Where should I go to church? Who should I, who should I join with? Should I join with the people who seem to, you know, have the most? <laughs> should I join with the people who, you know, it's just a few, a few members there? You know, what, how do we make those decisions? And I'm not going to answer that this morning. I'm going to let you kind of talk through that maybe at the end of the time if you get to it. Um, but I think the reality is that church membership has just really declined. And I think part of that's because we don't understand the value or the importance of church membership. We don't understand God's purpose for church membership. And so the, the title of the message this morning or this afternoon is, Does Membership Matter? Does Membership matter? Does it matter if I come to this church and I write my name on a piece of paper or I, you know, get added to some list somewhere, uh, you know, mass mailing list, email list. Uh, does, it, does it matter if I have this type of locked down commitment to a specific church? Um, and so that's what, I want to, that's what I want to discover this afternoon in Scripture. Again, um, we all probably have opinions on, on whether or not church membership matters. Um, but I think we need to go to Scripture to find out what God says about it. So the first question that we need to ask about this topic of does membership matter is, is church membership biblical? Is church membership biblical? Do we find it anywhere in Scripture? Is there a command in Scripture to be joined to a local body of believers? The way that we think of it, right? The first answer is, it's there's no command. <laughs> there's no command in Scripture that says, become a member of a church. You're not going to find it. I, I looked. I've looked for like three weeks now, all right? There's nothing in Scripture that says, thou shalt become a member of a local church, right? But as we look at Scripture, we need to understand that Scripture doesn't always just give us commands, right? It doesn't always just give us what we call prescriptive things. A lot of times we learn and we grow and we see God's desire, we see God's will, through the descriptive things in Scripture, right? So prescriptive things would be things that are specifically commanded to us. They're prescribed to us, all right? Descriptive things would be things that are described to us. So how the church acted, how the gospel was spread, you know, how we are uh, supposed to interact, how God thinks, what God is like. Oftentimes, those are gained through descriptive things about God, more than they are through clear statements about God. All right, so we, we learn from Scripture how God wants us to live, not just through commands, although those are great, right? Isn't it a whole lot easier when God just says, do this? That <laughs> makes it a lot easier, right? It, it, makes, it takes away a lot of interpretation problems, you know, and, and personal preference issues and things like that. It's so much easier when God says, just do this. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes he describes for us how we should do things or what we should do. And he gives us examples in Scripture so that we can follow those. And so we're going to be looking really um, mostly this, this afternoon at a descriptive process of how God is going to show us what he desires for the local church. So as we look at descriptive passages, I think there's three things that we need to understand to help us um, use them correctly, all right? Because descriptive passages can be used <laughs> very broadly based on a person's interpretation. The first thing that I think we should look at is who is the passage written to, 
right? We need to understand who the passage is written to. We talked about this a little bit when we went through the book of James. All right, so there, there was an original group of people or person, depending on the book of the Bible, that it was written to. So we need to understand the context of who that uh, piece of scripture was written to. Secondly, we need to understand what the cultural and historical context is of that passage. There are some passages in scripture that describe things and even command things that don't make a whole lot of sense in our current culture, all right? So we need to understand what is the intention? What is being, what is, what are they trying to teach? What are they trying to help us understand? How are they trying to become more like Christ through this teaching, understanding the historical context uh, and cultural context of the passage? And then thirdly, we need to understand the scriptural context of the passage. Where is it at in the book? Where, what has been said previous to this? What, what has been building up? If you read, especially Paul's epistles, there's typically a buildup of, of information, right? There's usually you have doctrine at the beginning and then you have, you know, prescriptive information at the end, right? And so he's, he's often building a case for what he's about to tell you or, what, or what's being described. So what's going on in the context of the, of the entire book? And I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, preaching through scripture, preaching through books is so valuable um, and why we prefer to do that because you get the context of every passage all the way through because you've seen it from the start to the end, right? So context is important. Context of who is written to, context of the culture and history and context of the scripture itself. So as we look at these descriptive passages, we need to understand that Scripture does not prescribe church membership, but I believe it describes church membership. Scripture recognizes, and this is how it does it, Scripture recognizes individual churches as part of, but separate from, the whole body. All right, let me say that again. Scripture recognizes individual churches as part of, but yet separate from the whole body. All right, how does it do that? Well, it talks about or to specific churches in different passages of scripture. It talks about or to specific churches. Um, if you look, I'll just give you a few examples here, just in the book of Acts. Uh, talks about the church in Jerusalem, Acts 5, verse 11. It talks about the church in Antioch, Acts 13, verse 1, and other places, obviously. Uh, it talks about the church in Caesarea in 1822, Acts 18, 22. It talks about the church in Ephesus in chapter 20, verse 17. And again, those are just those are just Acts, right? And those are not even all the ones in Acts, just four. Alright? It talks about and there are things written to specific churches, and they are noted as a church, all right? Now, they are included in the church globally as believers, but they are specified and called out as specific churches. There are multiple references in Scripture to churches, plural, all right? So, obviously, singular church is the full body of Christ, but they recognize specific churches. Churches, multiple churches, plural churches. The references to the global church, this is really interesting as I was going through and studying this and looking at all the different passages that talk about church, that use the word church or ecclesia. Most of the passages that reference the global church are passages teaching doctrine. Makes sense, right? Most of the passages referencing the body of Christ or the church as a whole in a global sense are done so teaching doctrine. Usually you're going to see those in the book of Ephesians. You're going to see those in the book of 1 Corinthians. Those are where most of them are. All right, so Ephesians, lots of, lots of passages in Ephesians talking about the church global as a whole and Christ's interaction with the church and, and how we grow as the church. In 1 Corinthians, very much the same thing, the body of Christ. And so we have references to the global church, but honestly, most references to the church are in the context of the local body. The, the references globally 
are mostly for doctrinal or instructional purposes. Another one that you'll see the church globally used is in reference to Paul when he persecuted the church, both in the Acts testimony and when he gives his own testimony, talking about the church globally. And, and it's even interesting in Acts, um, I forget the reference, but it talks about how when he was, when he was born again, the churches in this area, names out the different areas, they were at peace, <laughs> right? So even, even in that, it, you, you see his impact on the church global, but even the specific churches were at peace, but also the global church at that time. So scripture recognizes individual churches as part of, but separate from the whole body. Most of Paul's writings were to specific churches, either in a specific region or in a specific individual church. We're not really 100% sure how that worked. Um, there were obviously churches and houses. There were obviously larger churches. You think of the Church of Jerusalem. They met on the side of the temple, basically. <laughs> you know, So they, there were different sizes of churches, interestingly enough, uh, even in the early church. But they were all separate churches. Yes, part of the global body of Christ, but separate churches. And it's interesting, as Paul was writing to these specific churches, he expected those churches to pass on his writings to other churches and for them to read the writings to other churches. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 16, it says, And when this letter what has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. This is Colossians, right? And see that you have also read the letter from Laodicea. Right? So there are specific letters going to specific churches, but yet Paul understood the teaching that was there was beneficial to all, even though they referenced specific things. Number five. <laughs> um, churches were autonomous except for apostle oversight, uh, particularly in doctrinal issues. So churches were autonomous except in doctrinal issues of apostle oversight, all right? So when they would go out, they would uh, preach the word of God, they would share the gospel, people would be saved, and they would start a local body of believers. And there was no reporting structure. They didn't have somebody go up every year and just be like, what are we supposed to be doing? There's nothing in scripture like that. There's no reporting structure in scripture from the lower churches to the higher church. It's not there. The only incident that we have in Scripture that would maybe kind of lend itself to this idea is the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, I think. So the Jerusalem Council, what was it about? It was about a doctrinal issue. It was about whether or not the Gentiles needed to follow the works of the law. And the conclusion was, and it's interesting, the conclusion was made by whom? The apostles and the elders at the Church of Jerusalem. You know, this wasn't every, hey, y'all, everybody come in from, from all the churches and we're going to make this decision. It was really this spiritual leadership who mostly had been with Christ. These are the apostles and the, and the elders of the Jerusalem church. And they're the ones giving out this doctrinal clarity. And then, of course, we do see the Solomon and... Uh, um, I forget. Barnabas? Not Barnabas, the other one. Silas. Paul and Silas went out uh, and shared what they had said to the churches, right? <clears throat> so there's no, there's no reporting structure. The only issue that we see that, that looks like that is Jerusalem Council. Um, and that was basically just to say, you guys are good. <laughs> you don't need to do that. Don't listen to them. You know, they did give them a couple other instructions, you know, but, but it was doctrinal. Right? It was only in doctrinal issues. Uh, it's interesting the churches were freely allowed to give to anything that needed to be given to. Uh, there's only one time that I could find quickly where somebody was really like pushing. <laughs> and it was Paul in 2 Corinthians to the Corinthians, pushing for them to prepare ahead of time before he gets there for uh, money that was going to be going to Jerusalem. But churches all over 
raised money for different needs in other churches. The church in Jerusalem, they would raise needs, raise money to support Paul and the people that were traveling with him. Right? This was not something that was mandated by a hierarchy of churches. They were autonomous. They were free to, to live in, 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 for Christ in, the, in their own areas. There was no oversight other than apostle doctrine. Finally, I think, uh, new believers were gathered and structured into a local body by evangelists like Paul, and new members were added as they were being saved. All right, this is important. This is not just added to the global church, but they were added to the specific churches in that area. Churches were formed locally on purpose. All right, this was not just some organic thing that just grew out of people loving each other. All right, they were formed together on purpose by those spreading the gospel. Acts chapter 14, verses 9 through 23, and then we'll jump down to 16. Um, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the, t- the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to, Der- to Derby. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Tyconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. What did they do? They intentionally created a structure of a church. In each of those cities, they, they, it was an intentional thing. It wasn't just this natural thing that organically happened. Sure, some of it's natural and organic, or should I say supernatural, right? Because of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, there's, there's obviously going to be a supernatural connection. But it was intentional. The apostles and the evangelists would go out and they would start a church. And they would set up leadership in that church. If you go to Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5... Um, says, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. This is the same place, right? So he came back to this place. It says a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but the father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the others at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in faith and increased in numbers daily. All right, these are individual churches that are being set up with their own leadership, and we see them increasing through time. We see uh, Timothy, even a product of one of those churches, even ministering to other churches. In the area, he had a good report uh, from multiple churches. So, why do I say all that? I say all that just to remind us that Scripture recognizes individual churches as part of but separate from the whole body. God designed the local church. God designed the local church. Yes, God designed the global church, but God specifically designed the local church for a purpose. Number three, scripture gives us, scripture gives us commands that require some form of commitment. Scripture gives us commands that require some form of commitment. Any idea what those might be? Anybody think of one? There's a big one. Most people usually get it right away. Okay, yeah. So don't don't um, forsake the assembling of yourselves together in Hebrews. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any others? Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples? Not necessarily. No. I mean, that's part of it. But what are some commands that would kind of necessitate some form of commitment or membership? Love one another. Okay, we've got all the one another passages. Um, you can go find those <laughs> for yourselves. I didn't put that, put them down. 
But yeah, lots of one another passages. Who's, who's the one another that I should be one anothering with, if that's a verb, right? How do we determine who our one anothers are? All right, that's, that's one. What about um, removal and restoration of sinning brethren? That's the one thing nobody wants to talk about, right? Removal and restoration. Notice I, I put those together because really, what's the goal? The goal is restoration, spiritual restoration. It's not the goal is not to kick as many people out of the church as we can. The church, the goal is for the church to be pure. The goal is for the individuals in the church to be pure, to be uh, walking with God in a way that honors Him. But sometimes that requires removal. We have removal of those who are unrepentant in unrepentant sin. In First Corinthians five, we have the example of the man who um, was being immoral. And Paul told him, get him out. I mean, it was like dead plain. Go read uh, 1 Corinthians 5. He's just like, get rid of him. <laughs> because you think you're being nice. You think you're, you think you're, you're boasting. They're actually boasting that they were so gracious. And he's saying, no, you don't understand. That is wickedness and sin. And you're accepting that as, as part of Christ's church. He said, no, get rid of him. There's rebuking of an elder. Rebuking of an elder who is also an unrepentant sin, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20. There is removal of those who are causing division in the church. Remove them from what? The building? No, remove them from the commitment of the local body members. Remove them. That's in Titus 3, verses 9 through 11. So we have removal and restoration of sinning brothers. We have the responsibility of leadership to the flock. Remember, we just saw that, that they, as they went through, they were, they were putting leadership in place in each of these different churches. So there's leadership and there's responsibilities of leadership to the flock. How are the leaders supposed to know who they're responsible for? Just whoever walks in the door? I mean, you could go that route. But there's some, there's some very specific and interesting things and requirements of leaders. Uh, first of all, that's shepherding the flock of God. Who is the flock of God? Is it just anybody who walks in and sits down? May not even be a Christian. Right? So who is the flock of God? Um, Acts chapter 20, verse 28 talks about that. First Peter 5, 2 talks about shepherding the flock of God. Um, we're supposed to be laboring among them. We're laboring among the church. We're supposed to be part of a specific group. That's found in 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We're supposed to have charge over the church. We're supposed to oversee it. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 as well. And 1 Timothy 5.17. We're supposed to keep watch over your souls. Keep watch over your souls. Again, who? Anyone? People who go to that church? How do, we, how do we differentiate who those people are that we are engaging with in this manner as leadership? We are supposed to give an account for the individuals in our care. We are going to stand before God someday and give an account for you. And if you read Hebrews, it's found in Hebrews chapter 13, if you read that correctly, it's not, God's going to judge us on how we lived. But we're going to give an account of you. Who does that include? Anybody who ever walked through the door? No, I think scripture is pretty clear. There is a membership. There is a group of committed people that are part of this church. And as leaders, we have a responsibility toward them. 1 Peter 5, 3 also gives us that. We have obedience to authority as a requirement of those who are part of the church. Obedience to authority. Well, if you're not a member of a specific church, what authority are you under? Are you under our authority? The authority of that church over there? Maybe you go to this church, but decide you're under the authority of that church. <laughs> I mean, how do you know? How do we know? 
that you're under the authority of those. Uh, Hebrews 13, 7 says that to observe the lives of your leaders, right? The people who are uh, leading them. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 17 says to submit and obey leadership in the church. 1 Timothy 5, 19 says not to falsely accuse leaders. Now, it's not saying don't ever call out a leader. All right, I'm going to be very clear on that because leaders fail. All you have to do is look at the United States. All right, they fail and they fail horrendously. And we are just as apt as human beings to fail. But scripture is very clear that you don't bring a false accusation to another. There is a little bit of protection uh, in scripture, but we're still un- we're still under the same rules as everybody else when it comes to how we live. Uh, so it does it gives us an example there. It says, except for what, except for two or three witnesses, right? If an elder is living in sin and there are multiple witnesses of that, absolutely rebuke. Absolutely. But there's a relationship here of the of the the, the church to the authority. We have commands in scripture about how we're supposed to act around visitors. Visitors. How are we supposed to act around visitors? James chapter 2, right? We talked about that. The people who talks about people who are coming in mentions a rich person. And more than likely, the way that it's talking in there is probably somebody who was not normally a part of the, the gathering. It's probably a visitor. Um, it could have been actually in a completely different setting, but it says when you assemble, right? Um, and so it's more than likely somebody who was a visitor. Paul talks about this in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, where he's talking about orderly service in the church. How should we, how should we act in the church? And he's talking about tongues and prophecy and, and all these different things. And he says, your order is completely messed up. And, and basically he says, if everybody's speaking in tongues and somebody from the outside... It's interesting, he says, somebody from the outside or an unbeliever. That's an interesting phrase. He says, if someone from outside or an unbeliever. It's like two different groups of people there. Like there could be an outsider who's a believer. If somebody from an outside or an unbeliever comes in and they see all this going on, how are they going to be blessed? How's that going to benefit them? Right? So he gives us commands and how we're supposed to act in the church, even towards visitors. Finally, um, Scripture gives us a couple of references to widows in the church. You know, Acts chapter 6, we see the passage where, where the seven are called to serve. And they're called to serve. Why? Because the Greeks were saying, hey guys, our widows are not being taken care of. Were these just any random widows? <laughs> Anybody got a widow family member? No, these were widows who were part of the local body. We see that again in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 16. We actually see an interesting phrase where Paul talks about enrolling widows. And there's some debate as far as you know exactly what that enrollment is for. Obviously, part of that enrollment is for support. And care, that's very clear, but there's some other ideas out there as far as what else it might have included based on what the requirements are of the widow. Um, But that word enrolled means to to number or to add to a list. So there were obviously some form of list, at least for widows in the church. So scripture gives us commands that require some form of membership. While the church membership is not commanded in scripture explicitly, I believe it is assumed by scripture and should be considered a biblical practice. So the question, is membership biblical? I would say yes. Membership is biblical. Very quickly, who should be allowed to join? What's the pattern that we see? In scripture, we see they were they believed and were baptized and 
added to the church. Right? Now, you could get real picky and be like, well, they were added to the global church, David. Well, that happened when they believed. Right? That happened when they believed. We talked about that with baptism, right? Baptism didn't save them. That happened when they believed. They believed, were baptized as a sign of confession, as a sign of, of commitment to Christ, and then they were added to the church. They became a part of the local body. That was just the process. That's how it worked. So anybody who's going to join a church who follows Christ, who preaches the word of God, should be somebody who is saved. They have a clear testimony of salvation. It should be somebody who is baptized after being saved. I think the most logical sense would be by immersion. We have that in our, in our constitution as a requirement, baptism by immersion, um, in order for, to be a part of uh, our membership. So they have to be saved and baptized. Um, what about kids? What about kids? Here's where we've landed on children. Um, if you look at our requirements, it says that you have to be 18 years old. Why? Ephesians chapter 6. What does Ephesians chapter 6 tell us about children? It tells us that children are to be under the authority of their parents. Not just physically, but spiritually. Right? Because fathers are supposed to bring up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So children are under the spiritual leadership of their parents until they are out of the home. And we, we view that culturally as a, the age of 18. That's where we came up with that number. There's no number in Scripture. But culturally, in our setting, we view 18 as being, quote-unquote, out of the home. Not always is the case for every uh, young person. But that's kind of how we view roughly adulthood. Um, and so we believe that children are not members of the local body because they're under the authority, spiritual authority of their parents. Because when you become a member of the local body, you become, you're putting yourself under the spiritual authority of the leadership of the church. And you're committing to all the one another. You're committing to the accountability of the church body. All right? And as, as somebody who is still under the authority of the parents, that would not be, that would not work. <laughs> all right? So that's, that's children. Um, how are people added? We talked about that pretty quick in Scripture, right? Pretty quick. Now, we kind of live in a, in a culture where, first of all, we do that whole process real slow in, in the first place. But uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of times when people um, leave one church and go to another, right? Maybe, and maybe there's good reasons for it. You guys can maybe talk about that if we have time. No, that's not time. Um, but there, there are good reasons why somebody might go from one church to another. And so there, we, we need to figure these things out, right? We need to know, what is your salvation testimony? Have you been baptized since salvation? You know, do you desire to partner with us in that type of a commitment? Those are good questions to ask before someone comes and joins the church. I don't know if you guys remember, but we actually removed something from our constitution several years ago. Um, and that is when it comes to church membership, and that was a voting requirement. Does anybody, I remember when we joined, we got voted on. All right? It was, I think it was unanimous, I'm not 100% sure. I didn't hear anybody. But uh, it was voted on. There's just no scriptural support for that. Right? I mean, everything is very quick in Scripture. Believe, baptize, join the church. Right? So try not to add anything that, we, we, that is not necessary to the process there. Um, but there is an affirmation of the covenant, right? As we're talking through all these things, are, do you want to be a part of this type of relationship with our local body? 
very quickly, why should you join a church? I think it's biblical. I think we've made the case that it's biblical. But you can literally stand here and be like, you know what? It still doesn't say do it. It still, you know, you're one of those command people. It still doesn't say thou shalt join the church, so I'm good. I'm just going to keep living my separated life on my own. I'll keep watching YouTube videos and hope that's enough. You know, are YouTube videos great? Absolutely. I love them. But it's not the same as being connected to a local body of believers. And here's why I think you should join. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 16. We're not going to have A&I time because I talk too much. Um, I apologize. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 16. It was read earlier, so we won't reread it. But again, descriptive. When you look at this passage, I think this is one of those passages that I would say is both referring to global church and referring to the local church. This is instruction to a local church about local church issues, but it is applicable to the global church. All right? How do we know that? Who's it written to? The church in Corinth, right? It's written to the church in Corinth. It's written to a specific church. What's the scriptural context and really the historical context at the same time? If you go back and you look further in the past, you're going to see that the Corinthians were dealing with a lot of division in the church. There was a lot of division going on in the church. They were following certain people and not following certain people. They were dividing over who they were following. They were dividing over um, sin and whether or not they should, you know, be accepting people who are living in uh, unrepentant, sinful lifestyle, right? And and not pursuing biblical um, a response to that. And and so they were dividing over specifically, even in this direct context. <coughs> Excuse me, they're dividing over spiritual gifts. They're arguing over which spiritual gift is better. You know, I, I've got this, man, if that doesn't still happen today, right? Uh, they're arguing over the gifts of, of tongues versus the gifts of prophecy and, and these other, you know, lesser gifts. And, and they're creating division in that specific local church. And so Paul writes to them in this passage, the whole book really, but in this passage, talking about all these different issues and he comes to this passage and he says, look, regarding these spiritual gifts, you need to understand that you are one body. You are one body. The church is like a body in verses 12 and 13. He, he gives us that analogy that the church is like a body and it's the body of Christ, both globally and locally. And what they're doing is they're dividing, they're breaking up, they're tearing up the body of Christ by their division. In verses 14 through 21, Paul makes the case that God has chosen the members of the body to fit specific needs that complete it. What's he talking about there? He talks about the, you know, the, uh, the foot can't say because I'm not the hand, um, I don't belong to the body. Right? There were some in the church who were saying, well, I have a lesser gift. You know, maybe I don't really, maybe I'm not really part of that group. I don't belong there. Right? I, I have a, I'm just a foot. I don't really belong to this body. I don't deserve to be a part of this body. And there's, so there's some that are having that attitude. And then you read further on and it talks about the eye can't look at the hand and be like, I have no need of you. Right? You have the other people with eye have the gift of tongues. And you, you're just a service. We don't need you. We want a church full of tongue speakers. That sounds familiar too. We want a church full of prophesiers, you know. That, that's what was going on. There was division being caused based on these spiritual gifts that Paul tells them God specifically gave them. Verse, four, verse uh, 18 says, but as it is, God arranged the members. God arranged the members. Think about that. When we decide that we're going to join a church, God did that. 
Have you ever thought about church membership like that? I think if we really took that to heart, that would change the way that we look at how we interact with the church. That would change the way that we look at whether or not we leave a church over things that are not doctrinal issues. God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would be where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. God has specifically chosen the members of the body, both globally and locally, to fit specific needs that complete it. Finally, God has designed the local body to work together as one, each making up for the weaknesses of the others in perfect unity. I love that phrase, and when Eric was reading it, he paused, um, just like I would. <laughs> in verse 22, he says, On the contrary, talking about, you know, does the eye not need the hand? He says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Indispensable. Every part of the local body is necessary. It's necessary. In the middle of verse 24 says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God designed the local church. And he designed it for our good and his glory. He designed it for the care of the members who are part of it. He designed it so that as he continues on here, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice. Notice it didn't say they're all honored. But what's the attitude? They all rejoice. There's a oneness, there's a unity, there should be in the membership of a local body believers. God has designed you as a believer in Christ to be an active, integral part of a local body of believers so that through unity and growing up together in love, we draw others to Christ. That's what he's designed the church to be. That's what Jesus told us. If you love one another, people will know you're my disciples. They will be drawn to that love that they see among you. Of course, he's talking to the disciples at that time, but that same thing is true today of the local church. And that is the example that we have. Even in Ephesians chapter 4, we see that we are to grow up together in love into Christ, who is the head. Can you be a part of some of these things without getting your name on a piece of paper, without getting it added to a, an Excel spreadsheet that we keep, uh, keep track of you all? Um, can you do that? To some degree, yes. To some degree. But I think it'll always be incomplete. It'll always be incomplete because that's not what God has designed for us. Scripture shows us a better way, a biblical pattern of committing to a local body in a way that recognizes your commitment to them as members of Christ's body globally and their body locally so that you can engage, so that they can engage with you in covenant membership without reservation. I think that's important without reservation. How do we know who is a part of the body? We do it through local membership. I believe it's biblical. I believe it's important. And I would say, you know, this would be the time where, you know, in a lot of churches, they'd be like, every head bowed, every eye closed. If you'd like to join the church this morning, raise your hand. You know, we're not, we're, we're not throwing out an altar call on that. But I think we need to understand both as those that maybe are a part 
of the membership, those that are not a part of the membership, those that might be listening to this later that are in either camp, right? The importance of membership. And yes, a lot of this really is focused on why should you join with us? But another question I have for those of us who are already members is, are we living this out? Next week, Eric's going to talk about covenant and what that means and why that's important and why we talk about a church covenant. And if, you, if you're already a member of Liberty Hills Bible Church, my challenge to you as you listen to that message next week, ask yourself, I may have signed on a dotted line or I may have stood in front of the church and, and made this verbal commitment, but day in and day out, am I living as God designed the local church to live? Am I a part of the membership of this local body, the way God designed it? Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that in that sovereignty you gave commands, you gave descriptions, you gave us examples of the early church to show us the importance of the local body in our lives. Lord, I know there are many out there who would avoid this topic. There are many out there who would even say that um, the reasonings behind this are, are not good enough, Lord, but we know that your word is perfect, that you have given us example after example after example and commandment after commandment that just make no sense outside of a local body of believers, Lord. We just, we thank you for the church that you have set up here. Lord, we recognize once again it is your church, it is not our church. As leaders, Lord, we know so well that this is not our church to command, Lord, it's our church to simply guide in the way that you lead. We thank you for those who have committed to it. We thank you for those who who are growing together with us. We thank you uh, for those who will in the future, Lord, we we think now and even in the days ahead as we we look toward uh, what you have for us in a building, in in a fixed location, in a community, Lord, as we desire to be a church that is a gospel church that is reaching out to the community around us, Lord, I pray that as we do so, that we would be the salt and light that would draw people in to hear your gospel that they would see you, that they would believe in you, that they would follow in baptism, that they would join the church, not so that we can build up numbers, not so that we can uh, pat ourselves on the back, Lord, but so that you would be glorified in how we live, not just in the passing out of a track, but in the prayer for one another, in the comfort of one another, in the rejoicing with one another. God, make us the church that you want us to be. Be glorified in how we live, we pray. In Christ's name.